Hebrews, verse by verse. We're continuing the subject from last Sunday morning. How shall we read our Old Testaments? How the New Testament interprets the Old. Today we're continuing, it'll be Hebrews chapter 1, verses 7 through 14. Hebrews 1, 7 through 14. There are seven Old Testament quotes in these opening passages of the book of Hebrews. And that makes for a bumpy text that doesn't flow like 1 Corinthians 13 or Psalm 23 or the Beatitudes. And so I hope you have it in front of you because it's, it's just the nature of the text. It's not me. Um, it's a complex kind of a text. Hebrews 1, verse 7. Of the angels, he says, and here's the first Old Testament quote, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, and here's the next quote, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. That's the second quote. And here's a third quote. You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. That's the end of that quote. And to which of the angels has he ever said, and here's the next quote, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Let's pray together. We are blessed more than most people on earth with the freedom to assemble, to lift up strongly the name of Jesus Christ, to praise the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to enjoy each other's praise and worship and fellowship as the body of Christ. We are blessed. Whenever blessings like that fall so abundantly and so repeatedly, like the rain that we often just complain about, and your word indicates is a precious gift. The things that we have most easily, we tend to take the most lightly. We treasure these times together. We treasure these times together. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you'll come and nourish These are challenging verses, and may our minds be alert and our hearts be open as Jesus Christ is exalted with this text this morning. I ask it in your name. Amen. It's important to see what's going on in this very involved sermon text. It's it's never really easy to deal with a passage that's all... Um, 
I don't want to say tangled up with back-to-back quotations from other passages. So I already said, these words don't just flow with the poetic ease of, like, 1 Corinthians 13. And they aren't even like the sort of straightforward instruction that you would get from the book of James. But verses like this also carry benefits that other texts might not. We're still looking at the way the New Testament teaches the church to read the Old Testament. We started that last Sunday. That's online, if you were away, because you actually need it to help pull today's teaching together as well. So the writer is taking a whole chapter to unpack the idea that that he stated really quickly and really briefly in the opening two verses of this whole book, where he said, uh, long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. That was the idea. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So what, what today's text does is it starts to unpack the implications of, of you have the prophets and we have the son and he's trying to show how these two relate to each other the prophets and the son and the way he's going to do it is stringing together a whole bunch of quotations from their Old Testament scriptures and from the prophets and then he's going to say now I want you to see who these are pointing to or to whom these are pointing These last days are the days following the incarnation of God the Son, Jesus, the Christ. Christ means Messiah. Jesus Christ. Christ is not his last name, like Don Horbin. That's the way we use it. It's Jesus the Christ, the Messiah. So the last days are the days from the incarnation, that birth in Bethlehem, right up to this Sunday as we're sitting here in church and beyond. These are the last days. These are the days of the gospel. These are the days of the new covenant. This is where where we all live and worship and pray and study while we wait for Jesus to bring these last days to a conclusion, they're not finished yet, with his second advent. Advent means coming. The second coming of Christ. And the great value and the great difficulty of our text this morning is is we're being taught not only the meaning of this text, but we're being shown a method to find the meaning of other texts, Old Testament texts specifically. So that's what the writer emphasizes in those first two verses of chapter one. God spoke in many ways, many times, through many prophets. But those ways and those times, they're they're finished now. The The Son is God's final word. He's the word all the other revelations were preparing for. And so our writer, the writer of Hebrews, 
He is laboring in today's text. He's laboring to say, now that we have the final word, the final revelation, we can see more accurately what God was up to in all of those previous revelations. We can see previous revelations and understand them in a way we never could before Jesus came on the scene. That's the idea behind this text today. There are seven Old Testament texts strung together and quoted in these first ...in this first chapter of Hebrews. Seven. I mean, why not just one? He could make his point. Why not two? Didn't he know we'd have to read this? Seven. Because the writer wants... ...remember, he's addressing this to these Jewish believers. That's his audience first... And he wants these Jewish believers to whom he writes, and then you and me, to whom the Holy Spirit will direct these verses, he wants them to see a methodology. He wants them to see a way of seeing their Old Testament prophets, your Old Testament scriptures. He wants all readers of his words to see the preparation of the whole world for the coming of Jesus, the Christ, God the Son. And he wants, he wants them, these Jewish believers, and us, he wants us to know that the purpose of God never was to create just a standalone Jewish religion. It was never in God's mind. Hard for us to get that straight. but he wants to help the New Testament church, that's us, to see the ongoing value of the progressive revelation of the whole Bible. It's all God's word when it's taken in its proper, Christ-centered, redemption-filled, historic sweep. So that's where we are. We're going to honor the intent of the writer of our text. We won't just brush through these verses and all these tricky quotes so we can get to less dense passages. These words were written for a purpose, and we're going to honor that as we study them this morning. You really should have a text of some kind in front of you. Bible, iPad, iPhone, whatever you... Unless you just have the whole book of Hebrews memorized. And if you do, you should start your own church, because that's amazing. Okay, point number one. And if... I said, if, this is a little bit longer this morning. I just said, if. Then what we'll do is we'll have a more of a prayer emphasis tonight. We might not close with prayer for needs, but we will certainly do that in the evening service. We'll just play that by ear, okay? Point number one, angels are set apart and distinguished by their service. The sun is set apart and distinguished by his nature. Now remember, we finished studying, he compares the sun to the prophets in the first part of chapter 1. He starts to compare the sun to angelic beings in the latter part of chapter 1. And that's kind of where we still are. So Hebrews 1, 6 to 8, reads like this. 
And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, that's the incarnation, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your, your throne, look at this. This is addressed to the sun. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. Angels are set apart by their service. He's, again, he's trying to show us there's a difference between angels, these special beings, and God the Son, who is on a different level entirely. He started with that last week, and he's, he's still continuing with it a bit. Now, there are places in Scripture, just in case somebody wants to show this to you sometime, where angels collectively are called sons of God. That shouldn't surprise anybody. Job 38, 6 and 7, I'm just reading this to you. On what were its bases sunk, or who laid its cornerstone, when the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy? There are other places. But there's no place in the text where any single individual angel or person is ever called the Son of God. That title is reserved for the pre-existent Son sent incarnate into this world. When he brings, that sixth verse, when he brings the firstborn into the world. And that title, firstborn into the world, it refers to that moment of incarnation where the pre-existent one took on human flesh. We remind ourselves, don't we, every Christmas that the Son was worshipped by angels. Angels from the... Right? I hate to bring Christmas to your mind. But we tell us, we remind ourselves of that all the time. He was worshipped by angels. That's our writer's point. Angels are certainly wonderful beings. Those who didn't fall with Lucifer are worthy of mention for their devoted service to God. That's what our writer does. They are quick in their obedience. Our text says, verse 7, they're like the wind. They do it without hesitation. And they are holy, flames of fire, verse 7, pure in their motives and interests. So our writer's point isn't to denigrate angels in any way. Jesus taught us to pray that our lives would be so ordered that, that God's will would be done on earth like it is now in heaven could be a reference to the way angels do his bidding and worship him around the throne. They're special. But while they serve and while they're holy, they are not of the same nature as the Son. Angels are created beings. The Son is the, we saw it last week, the creator of all things. The Son created angelic beings. Angels are a part of the created order. The Son is not. The Son certainly is born into this earthly world. He is the firstborn of creation in the sense of an entry point into the created order. But having said all of that, the Son is never said to be of the same order as this created realm. 
He isn't just another angel. He isn't just another prophet. And the purpose of this isn't just intellectual doctrine. It's, it's doxology. It's worship. It's adoration. We may listen to prophets, but it's idolatrous to worship them. Angels are special indeed. The Bible hints, just hints, at their occasional role in Revelation as it talks about them and being involved in the giving of the law in Galatians 3.19. They're involved in revealing the information of the birth of John the Baptist and of Jesus, Luke 1.11, Luke 1.26, so on. They're involved, but we don't worship angels. We don't worship on the basis of teaching given or revelation given. We worship on the basis of divine nature. That's, see, that's the unique thing about Christianity. We don't worship any prophet, as with Muhammad, for example. We don't worship prophets. Not any prophets. That doesn't mean some of the things they say aren't true. We don't worship them because they're not God the Son. They're not divine. And we aren't waiting for the return of any prophet, like Elijah. But we do worship Jesus. We do it because Jesus encouraged it. The Bible teaches it. While we're sitting here this morning in a realm we can't see, but just as real as this, as this entity right here, just as real, while we're sitting here, angelic beings worship around the throne. I was reading from Revelation 5. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns, with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp, golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain. By your blood you ransom people for, from, for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked and heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads of thousands and thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor, and glory, and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven, and on earth, and under the earth, and in the sea, and all that is in them, saying, to him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb, be blessing, and honor, and glory, and might, forever and ever. We worship the Son. Point number two. Unlike prophets and angels... The Son is eternal, and He's the creator of all that exists. So He's made this comparison. Here's what's said about angels. We just finished that. But of the Son, He says, and now you get into these quotes. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of 
uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. That's the end of that quote. And, the other quote, you, Lord, laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Now, the first part, that's that first quote, It's quoted from Psalm 45. And it's important to know this. Psalm 45, by all scholarly measurements, was originally written as a a Davidic kingly wedding celebration. We might be shocked to read those words, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever when you think of the original context. But it actually isn't that uncommon for God's representative, King David. It's a theocracy. It's not like any government on earth today where God anoints a king to set up over his people. So so the king, more specifically than ever since, he is God's representative ruler over them, as though God himself was ruling. So David was God's anointed. He was selected specifically by God. Remember the story of how David was found? I got one other kid. He's out there looking after the sheep. Go get him. God anoints him. David's God's anointed, specifically selected by God himself. And so, David is celebrated as God's presence on Israel's throne. That's the original context of Psalm 45. But what our text in Hebrews does with these words is really interesting and quite powerful. See, the writer takes those words from the psalm and applies them directly to the final heir of David who will sit on an eternal throne. Still David's offspring... He applies them to the ultimate Davidic king. And so that verse 8, but of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Now those first six words, but of the son, he says, that's not from Psalm 45. That's not part of the quote. That's the writer of Hebrews explaining the rest of the quote. And the writer's point is, there never was another descendant of David who ruled, or could rule, forever and ever. Who was this talking about? And our writer says, it's about the Messiah. The text points to the final ruling offspring of David, Jesus, the Christ. And then then our text goes on to say, Unlike any of the previous Davidic kings, this one, this ultimate fulfillment of all those words, this king will have an absolute bias toward holiness. He will have an absolute bias against sin. You've loved righteousness. 
We're okay with that. This one we're not crazy about. Intolerant, isn't it? How dare he? There never was a king like this in the Old Testament. Read your whole Old Testament through. They had their moments. Such a king will have no problem separating the wicked from the righteous at the final judgment, Matthew 25. Such a king takes his greatest delight in in bringing the redeemed into his kingdom. Look at the last part of verse 9. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. This divine king will find greater joy in delivering the captives from sin and Satan than they will have even being the delivered. He loves to deliver people. Such is the heart of this offspring of David who will rule forever and ever. Oh, man. I'd like to do more. Can't. Three. Point number three. The origin and destiny of this whole created realm are bound up in the greatness of the divine Son. You, O Lord. Here's another quote. You, O Lord, laid the foundation of the earth at the beginning. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Look at this. Like a robe, you'll roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. You are the same. Your years will have no end. Now these words are quoted from Psalm 102, verses 25, 26, 27. Let me just give you, you don't need to look it up, because I'm just going to fly over this. The whole psalm is fascinating. An overview would work something like this. The psalmist is in great distress In the first two verses of that psalm, he's pouring out his heart, complaining, actually. Both he and his city, Zion, are experiencing divine judgment. That's 3 through 11 of the psalm. He prays for the restoration. Restoration so he and his people can once more rejoice and praise God. That's verses 21 and 22. So that's what that psalm is about. And it's during this time of trial... And prayer that the psalmist, Psalm 102, he starts to he starts to realize just the uncertainty of life, 23 and 24 especially. And this is what leads the psalmist to contrast his life and his circumstances, because he's seen he's seen his, his reign and his kingdom go up and down, such fluctuation such lack of permanence and stability. And he contrasts that with the permanence, the unchangingness of God. And he, and he focuses, the psalmist I'm talking about now, we're still in that psalm, he focuses on divine eternal help because any lesser help will be no help at all. Because even if the psalmist 
was fortunate enough and blessed enough to have victory over every foe, the victory would be short-lived because the grave swallows it all up. That's where that song is going. What is true of the psalmist is true of you and it's true of me. We wear out like a garment. Is anybody else finding this? You get out of bed in the morning and you go, wait a minute, when, oh, when did that start hurting? Is that just me? Please tell me anybody else is having this happen. Yeah. What, what, what is happening? We're folks wearing out. Wearing out like a garment. You can go to the gym. You can go to the gym until you have a heart attack and you're wearing out. We can't, we can't hold on to any of our gains. There are sad parts to this. We can't keep our loved ones. You can't keep any of your loved ones. Not one. We are like old socks. Old towels. We have towels in our house. The ones I'm allowed to use. There are mysteries in life you just accept as you go along. <laughs> Towels you're allowed to use, not those, those. Has anybody else had this experience where, you, you know, you're, you're, you're drying with a towel and someone comes and says, what, what were you thinking? And you say, I, I don't know, I was wet, there was a towel. I... We wear out. Everything about our earthly lives wears out so quickly. One of the saddest things we do when you think about it, we take pictures of our loved ones in our happiest moments because we know those moments are forever gone. And you can't get them back. And it gives us the impression that we're freezing time. You ever had your kids laugh at your wedding pictures? So is there any hope for, for, for time-crinkled people like us? If there is, it's going to have to come from another realm altogether. And this is the part of the psalm, the writer of Hebrews now, back in Hebrews, he, he, he quotes, he focuses his attention on a, a deliverance, a victory is coming of a greater magnitude than the psalmist could ever imagine when he prayed for victory over his enemies. And so our writer takes those words and applies them to the Christ because he will do a work that is eternal, not temporary. Those words of might and eternity and all the hopes tied up in them, they're now quoted and applied in direct fulfillment... They will perish. You will remain. They will wear out like a garment. Let me just show you those. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And those words of eternal divine majesty and help 
find their final fulfillment in the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. Got to fly. Point number four. The greatest hope and deliverance the Old Testament writers longed for and prayed for was fulfilled in the incarnation and redemptive work of God the Son. You can see it in verses 13 and 14. To which of his angels, here's the contrast again, to which of his angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all? They. That's them, the angels. Are they not all ministering spirits sent to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? The last part of verse 13 is a direct quote from Psalm 110, verse 1. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That's the quote. And the question at the beginning of verse 13 shows that the writer is still has this comparison between the sun and angels on his mind. To which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? To which of his angels has he ever said that? Well, the question is meant to be rhetorical. The answer is zero, none, never. Words like this were never spoken to any angelic beings. They are reserved for the Son alone. And, and as if to underscore that point, the closing words of, of this chapter, they ask the same question in different words. Don't angels just serve? Are they not all ministering spirits? Never forget, that's what angels do. They serve. And so here we are. We've seen now, we've seen this pattern repeated, finding the fulfillment of Old Testament prophets and writings and seeing their ultimate fulfillment in the New Testament arrival of God the Son when he was born into this world. So we need, now we need to stop just for a bit. We're not done, but we need to just pause. Is this the right way to do Bible reading? And all I can tell you is it's the way the New Testament writers saw their scriptures. That's all I can tell you. And it's also the way Jesus saw his scriptures. In his argument with the Jewish religious leaders of his day, Jesus quotes Psalm 110. See, to me, that carries a lot of weight. If you want to see that, it's in Matthew... What we've been doing from Hebrews is what Jesus did. Look at Matthew 22. Verses 41 to 45. We're very close to finished. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together... Jesus asked them a question. So the, the important point here is Jesus initiates this. That wasn't always the case. They're usually attacking and Jesus is explaining. Here, Jesus is starting something. So Jesus asked these religious leaders, scribes, Pharisees, these people who poured over their Old Testament texts. Jesus addresses them. 
a question. The question is, what do you think about the Christ, the Messiah? Because they had their views. It's not that they didn't believe in the Messiah, they just didn't think it was Jesus. And so we ask this question, whose son is he? That's the Messiah. Whose son is he? And they said to him, well, he's the son of David. He, this is Jesus, he said to them, how is it then that David, in the spirit, so Jesus believes in the inspiration of these words, that's an important point. How is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord? Calls who Lord? Well, this, this reference to the son. He's called Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies, put your enemies under your feet. And then Jesus again, if David calls him Lord, so this is David, see, this is the Lord. You, you all see that? If then David calls him Lord, this is a fair question, how is he his son? And Jesus is messing with their heads. Jesus poses a riddle with a powerful answer. Jesus initiates. He asks the question, 41, and the question is bending the brains of these religious leaders who acknowledge their heritage in David but deny Jesus as the Messiah. This is, this is Judaism to this day. And so the question, boil it right down, is this. Whose son is this Jesus claiming to be the Messiah standing right in front of them? Whose son is he? They know who he's supposed to be, who the Messiah should be. They answer right away, 42, well, he's David's offspring. Messiah is David's offspring, David's son. Then why, Jesus says, quoting this 110th Psalm, why does David call his son Lord? That's Psalm 110. I'll show it to you. Psalm 110, verse 1. This is what Jesus is quoting. The Lord said to my Lord, and it's those terms... And though the question is kind of left hanging in the air. The coming Messiah is David's offspring. Yes, they have no trouble with that. And the Messiah is also David's Lord. We're left, just like these Trinity-denying Jewish leaders were left, we're left with these two facts. It's profound. With regard to Christ's humanity... He is David's offspring. With regard to his pre-existent deity, he is David's Lord. Which is it? And the answer is yes. Now remember where we are. One of the key principles of this kind of involved teaching is just the way the text comes. is we use the full revelation of the New Testament as the surest way of seeing the gradual unfolding revelation of the Old Testament. 
That's how we do it. You don't start with the old and interpret the new. You start with the new and work back into the old. Does that principle stand up with what we've just read? That final quotation from Hebrews? Do we find clear revelation of Jesus being both David's son and David's Lord? Well, yeah, we do in the teaching of Jesus, for sure, Matthew 22. And there's one other place. It's in Romans. I want you to see that this is something that stands up. It's not just an isolated, lucky text. Here's the same idea. Look. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised... So he's talking about the gospel, okay? Then he says, this was promised. Promised beforehand through his prophets. So that's what we've been seeing. The same thing. Concerning his son... Now look. He's talking about the gospel of God... And so his son is God's son. That's what he's talking about. That's just the meaning of the sentence. Who was descended from David according to the flesh. Do you get that? There's this physical nature. You can trace the genealogy. It goes right back to David. And was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Same thing. Same thing as you see in Hebrews. Same thing as they quote the Psalms. Same thing as you see in the teaching of Jesus with the Pharisees. Same thing as you see in the teaching of the Apostle Paul. That's a long way home through that text to say we are right in worshiping Jesus, God the Son. It is the pattern of the Old Testament and the New. Here is one angel's worship. Here is the one the prophet's pointed to. Here is the one, the only one, who will rule when he comes again, put all enemies under his feet. We don't see it yet. We're going to look at that next week. Don't see all the enemies under his feet yet. He is going to come, and he is going to bring a brand new creation, a new heaven and a new earth, and he will rule and reign. He is absolutely unique. If you're here this morning, you've never heard it before, that's why we worship Jesus. This is different from any religious leader on the planet. And we exalt his name. Because only he can forgive sins, give you hope of eternal life, resurrection from the dead, a new creation and a new kingdom when he comes again. And that is something the church celebrates. Let's pray.